Branding Badass, and welcome to Season 2 of Branding Matters. Today's episode is going to be a little bit different. My guest is someone I've known for over 20 years, and the conversation ended up becoming a little bit on the philosophical side, mainly because of certain circumstances that happened in his life that changed the trajectory of his career. But it was such an amazing conversation, I have no doubt you're going to enjoy it and be inspired as much as I was. His name is Alex Morin, and he is the founder and CEO of Almost Enlightened Inc., a cutting-edge educational resource that encompasses business coaching, life coaching, professional writing, and an award-winning podcast by the same name. Alex is also the creator and host of another new podcast he launched in 2022 called Promo Noise. It's an educational podcast that is specifically geared to the promo world. Before launching Almost Enlightened, Alex had a thriving career in branding where he provided branded merchandise to such suppliers like myself. And after 20 years climbing the corporate ladder, Alex eventually became a partner at a thriving global corporation where he's still a shareholder today. I invited Alex to be a guest on my show today to talk about his eclectic career. I wanted to learn about his experience in the branding world, both good and bad, And I was curious to learn why, at the peak of his incredible career, Alex threw in the towel to become, as he calls it, almost enlightened. Alex, I am so honored to have you on my show today. Welcome to Branding Matters. Well, thank you, Jolie. I'm so thrilled to be here. I have followed your career for years, known you for decades, and now I know you as a podcaster, a very successful podcaster, and I couldn't be more thrilled to be on this particular program and to be talking with you about all things promo, advertising, and branding. So thanks for having me on your show. Oh my God, of course. And podcasting, you're also into it. We're going to get into all that. It's crazy. I was thinking, I don't know the last time I've seen you. I mean, obviously it was pre-COVID. It must have been in Toronto before you retired or switched careers. So it's <laughs> probably like at least two, maybe three years. It has been. But in the virtual world, I see you nearly every single day. So you come across <laughs> my LinkedIn feed. I follow you on your podcast. Oh, so I get my fill of Jolie. Um, I, you know, Unfortunately, we haven't seen one another one-to-one in a long time. And I don't even remember the last time we saw one another uh, in person but uh, man I, I sure I sure see you all the time on social media oh that's funny well likewise all right well let's get right into it but before we talk about our industry and branding and all that stuff you've had quite the career I have to say when mm-hmm. I was doing my research again you know it's funny I've known you for 20 years at least but it's always been we see each other in person maybe twice a year if lucky but usually once a year at the events and everything and I mean really like who is Alex right and so when I when we decided that you know you were going to be on my podcast and then of course I do all my research and I found all this stuff about you that I thought was so interesting so I'm really excited to dig in but before we do can you just give a little bit of your origin story as far as where you went to school and what you studied there? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I grew up on the West Coast. I live in Toronto now, but I grew up uh, all of my life. I guess all of my formative schooling life was in BC. Where did you stay in university? I studied a variety of things. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I went in. I thought maybe I'll do a little physics, maybe I'll do a little uh, economics. And along the way, I ended up ditching both of those and got an English literature degree. Go figure. Never would have dreamed of doing that, but that's what I ended up with. Yeah. Well, you're a good writer. So obviously you have a passion for writing, I assume, right? Is that why you took English? 
Yeah, it's yeah. It, it, it wasn't necessarily the writing. It was Shakespeare that actually caught oh, me. Okay, so it was yeah. third year I love Shakespeare. Well, who doesn't? Have I mean, I guess to, there's lots of people, but have you been to Stratford? Uh, of course, I have. Yes, yeah. yes. I went the, to Stratford with my dad that. when I was. I love Shakespeare. I actually studied all the same thing, and I went to Stratford. I think I was, I don't know, maybe fifteen. He took me, and we went to see a whole bunch of. You know, they had a festival, Stratford Festival, right? Which is famous for the Shakespeare Festival. So, oh, that's yes. so cool that you like Shakespeare. That's awesome. It's funny. My son's in grade 10 and he's actually studying Romeo and Juliet right now. So, oh, uh, yeah. Cool. So, this all, so, we were talking a lot about Shakespeare. When did you, so you grew up in BC and you went to university. So, when did you move to Toronto and why did you move to Toronto? So, it was shortly after I graduated from the University of British Columbia that I moved to Toronto. And it's, of course, it's because I met a girl at UBC who was from Ontario. And this is, this is the reason so many people leave, right? So, I, uh, I moved shortly after my getting my degree there. And um, the other reason I moved was because at the time I was uh, wanting to be a musician. I was doing lots of music and I thought, hey, you know what? I'm going to move to Toronto. This is where my girlfriend lives. Her family's here. She wants to move back. And if I'm going to make a go of music, Toronto would be a wonderful place to do that. So that was the the goal, Jolie, was to move to Toronto to actually play music. And I did that for the first, I don't know, I'd say five years. Uh, Started a couple of different bands, got in different projects, started touring around Ontario and then found promo. <laughs> wow. Well, that you know what? Good for you. You got to try things out and follow your passion. And it's something you can continue to do. Okay, so you graduated from English, and then you went to Toronto, and then you want to be in a band. Like, how the hell did you go from that into the promo world? So after having my first child, I... Well, you let's be clear. I don't think you had your first child. <laughs> when you became a dad for the first True. time. Let's give all the credit to Karen. Yeah, yeah. After we had our first child, yeah, yeah. Um, I I realized that I was making zero money. We wanted a house. Um, and I guess we thought at the time, that's what you do when you have a family is you get a house. And so I figured, okay, like if I'm going to be the parent I want to be, I think I have to be stable. I think I have to be around and quit touring around all over the place and doing music. So I went to a headhunter and told them, Hey, this is what I can do. This is some of the experience that I have. They found a couple of different options for me. And I got offers from a few companies and settled on this one company called Debco And I really thought I would only be there for a couple of months. I thought for sure, you know what? Something's going to take off. I'll end up doing something else. Promo. I had never even heard of the industry before. So there was no rhyme or reason as to why I got into it. It was just a headhunter that introduced me to the company. That was it. Wow. Okay. I didn't realize that. And so then fast forward, you were there for 20 years and you moved (laughs) up and you became, before you left Debco, what was your final role there? I went through a whole bunch of iterations to answer that question. My final role would have been VP of sales for North America for the larger company that ended up buying us out. And along the way, I had lots of different job titles. So I went from uh, account manager to business development manager to national sales manager to vice president of sales to executive vice president of sales and marketing. And then uh, the the VP of uh, North American sales for the the big conglomerate. So you became the rock star that you always want to be. (laughs) <laughs> well, funny you should say that. Yes and no. I mean, it, it came with a lot of notoriety, of course. It's a prominent position. Um, but the funny thing is, Jolie, is that is that I did kind of get to live out my dream because everywhere I traveled, I brought a guitar with me. And it was my calling card. And I didn't realize that at first, but 
it became a, a wonderful tool to unite people to uh, distinguish myself and to stand out from the crowd when there's tens and hundreds of thousands of people. And so, yeah, in some sense, actually, I really did get to play music for a living as I toured around North America, visiting distributors and doing lots of different supplier events. So yeah, yeah kind of funny. It came full circle. I mean, I, I used to see you play, but what I met was just a rock star in the industry. So I was kind of yeah. playing on terms, but that's okay. <laughs> so 20 years plus years in the industry. I mean, I've been in the industry, same a bit longer over 20 years. So looking back now, what would you say would be three things that you liked best about the promo world? I made so many good relationships, so many of them that I still have to this day. And I would even say that many of the relationships that were challenging were probably instrumental in allowing me to grow, allowing me to learn. So relationships was, you know, probably comes in in that top three and then the other thing is just the experience. It's, it's a totality. When you look back at it, when you look back at every single thing that makes up a career in an industry, it's all of those experiences and you can bundle them into one. It's just this emotional ride that you were on, or you can just pick and parcel them out and say, my gosh, I learned here. I felt there. I, I hurt there. I, you know, all these different things. So for me, it's all about experience. And I think that speaks to my love of learning because I am committed to the fact that experience is education. And uh, that's what, uh, that's what I crave in life is just education. Let's get a little bit more specific. Let's mm -hmm. talk about like branded merchandise because it is a very unique industry. Can you maybe get a little bit more specific as far as the swag and the industry and all that? Is there anything about that that you particularly love? Yeah, there were lots of things that I liked about product. There were lots of things I liked about the vehicles that we use to advertise. And I think what I liked more so than the product was the medium and everything that it means and its iconic nature. So, you know, we, we went into technology and we were doing all kinds of speakers and interesting items. And I found that there was a lot of uh, excitement built around the notion of what a speaker means to somebody and, and how it can actually be an emotional vehicle for somebody uh, when they're playing a song that they remember from high school graduation at their desk and thinking about a brand. And those kinds of things really made me ponder life and made me really wonder uh, all kinds of things about why people gravitate towards certain promotional products. So I always found uh, there was an esoteric nature to promotional products that really drew me in. And then, of course, the innovation. Uh, I, I love the way technology is inventing and reinventing itself constantly. And I think you could say that about our products as well. We're constantly on the lookout for how our products will evolve and what materials we'll use and how we'll decorate them. And I always got a kick out of, out of trying to reimagine uh, promotional products and, and evolve them and iterate them. So, yeah, there's so many things I like about the products themselves. I, I found it uh, quite an interesting avenue to pursue and to, to ponder. I could make a case for a ton of different reasons why promotional products are so vitally important. And especially during the COVID lockdown and shutdown, promotional products have brought companies together. And there's all kinds of ways that you can unite people with a properly placed promotional product. Lots of things you loved about the industry. You know, you're a real people person. Can you think of things that maybe turned you off? I mean, 20 years is a long time. There certainly were. And I, th I think that no matter what we're looking at in life, we can find the challenge in it. 
And that can be raising your kids. That can be the food you eat. It can be absolutely everything. And so, yes, of course, there were things that I found challenging about the promotional products industry. And one of which is something that my mentor, Stan Gallen, the old owner of Debco, had talked about when I interviewed him on a podcast not too long ago. And we share a common belief that that one of the biggest challenges of the promotional products industry, and I would say for most industries in general, is the ugliness of capitalism, the ugly side of capitalism. And to be more specific, I would say that we often compromise our values because of capitalism. And I found that challenging. It it became particularly challenging at the end of my career. I, I was having real problems with it. I was having a real issue not speaking my truth anymore, not expressing myself. And to go further into detail, I will say that there is a level of falsity that exists between the supplier and the distributor that's inherent in a capitalistic system. And so let's be specific. So the lifeblood of my business as a supplier is you, the distributor, right? You are my sales force. And so it behooves me to have an unbelievable relationship with you, an honest one, a beautiful relationship where we're feeding one another ideas. Alex, here are my opportunities. Jolie, here are the product solutions that I have for you. And in that manner, we get along beautifully. And 99% of the time, that was the case for me and why I love the relationship so often and so much. However, 1% of the time, there is the, the almost the knowledge that, that you are being fed a line. So, for instance, you know, you might say something's gone wrong with this order, Alex, and it is my biggest client ever, and they absolutely hate me, and they're not paying for the order whatsoever. And, and, and that might not be the case, actually. And so I'm strong-armed into doing something that I don't really want to do, give a massive discount, give the order away for free. That type of relationship exists, unfortunately. And I found that difficult. I, I, I did find that aspect of, uh, of the industry difficult. And, and I will readily say that that wasn't the case most of the time. 99% of the time, it's, uh, it's a beautiful relationship. But, but I did struggle with that. Hmm. That's interesting. I, you know, I never came across that, but putting myself in your shoes, I could see how that would be a turnoff. Going on branding, we, I always talk about when brands, how they connect with their audiences through creating trust in their relationships. And if you don't have trust, then you don't have anything. So feeling that you don't have that trust, I could see how that would make a disconnect, right, between you and your customers, because ultimately... I'm your customer. You're not trusting me. I mean, the trust goes both ways, right? So yeah, I can see how that. And and, and then the other component too, with regard to capitalism is our inherent desire as both supplier and distributor to maximize our profits. And so when it comes to negotiating vendor agreements, that can be contentious as well, right? So on one side, you're pushing for volume rebates, better pricing, marketing allowances, And that's eroding my profitability, right, as a supplier. But however, on your side, you're probably being pushed by your your end user as well. So I could see that there's friction no matter what side of the equation you're on. And I think that's the interesting thing about capitalism is that whether you are in the distributor seat, whether you're a supplier, or whether you're your customer, Jolie, who is the end user, so we got a whole other, you know, segment they're struggling with the same things. We're all struggling with profitability, right? And that's that's the problem is we're struggling with profitability, with revenues, when we should be struggling about our humanity, about who we are, about lifting one another. And that's that's kind of where I got myself to at the end of my career was just questioning all these things and wondering, can I do it differently? Is there, is there any possibility that life could look different than, than the way it does right now? 
Well, I can definitely see how that leads to what you're doing now, which we will get into. I want to I want to talk a little bit more, though, about the industry and how it's changed. And what role did you play as far as bringing new mar- new products to market? It's a complex question to answer. And the simple answer is not a massive role in the co- in, in the in the scheme of things. So when I talk about 4000 SKUs in the warehouse, Look, the, the vast majority of those are sourced by a, uh, an overseas sourcing team that are phenomenal at what they do. So, so in that, from that standpoint, look, I, I'm not the chief sourcing guy. I never was. However, I will say that I did play a key role in many product categories that came in that ended up becoming top selling product categories of ours. And, uh, I, I can even tell you a funny anecdote, Jolie, that always makes me smile. And it, it makes me smile because I, I get to think of my mom when I, when I think of this story. And it revolves around a speaker many, many years ago that my mom gave me. She was a flight attendant and she used to fly to the Orient quite often. She would always bring back interesting things for us, custom-made suits, all kinds of cool clothing. And one trip, she brought me back a speaker. And it was a speaker that was a tiny bit bigger than a golf ball. And it was a corded speaker long before Bluetooth had even become a household name or a household concept. And it was in the shape of an apple. It was so cute. And you could unscrew the top of it and it would just slightly separate so that kind of a disco glow would glow while while your music was playing. Anyways, the point of my story is that I put that on my desk for a couple of years and I, I plugged it into, remember iPods? I, pl- I would plug it into my iPod. Of course iPod. I remember iPods. I remember, t- I, I, excuse me, I remember cassette tapes, okay? So I remember 8-tracks, so yeah, don't worry. Yeah, yeah, I remember iPods. my language, yes, yes. So, so I used to plug my iPod in, and sometimes I would plug it into my laptop, and I would listen to music with this little speaker. And for two years, it sat on my desk. And one day I said, what the heck am I doing? I use this thing every single day. Does it not stand a reason that other people would use this product as well? So I brought it over to the overseas sourcing department. I said, guys, could you source this? And them being so good at what they did, uh, after two weeks, boom, we had a sample. And we were like, yeah, that's amazing. That's exactly the product. Let's bring it in. And at the time, nobody in the industry had speakers, Jolie. Nobody, nobody. So we brought this speaker in. I think I, if I remember correctly, the SKU was the CU7323. <laughs> disgusting. That's funny that you remember it, eh? Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. But we brought it in and the thing took off like wildfire. Every. Everybody had to have it. I remember it was one of our top producing SKUs, probably two years in a row in terms of revenue brought in. And it spawned an entire product category in speakers. And we had a whack of different corded speakers. And then, of course, moved into Bluetooth. And everyone was doing Bluetooth at that point. But that's an example of how tangentially I would introduce concepts. How and wait, how what? Tangentially? Tangentially. So, so What's yeah. that? Uh, on a what does that mean? So, 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 oh, so not directly, okay. but indirectly would be, would be. Wow. The, I just learned a new word tangentially. Okay. <laughs> so, so this is an example and, and I'll give you one more example when it comes to my uh, influence with, with yeah. new products. The other way that one can influence new products is by, 
Well, there's two ways, and I, and I would I would say that I did both. One way is understanding who the talent is in the industry, and I always had an eye for talent in the industry, and and was able to bring on board people who were thought leaders and who were leaders in in their fields. And I remember one gentleman who I just adored, and he was funny as heck, charming, a relationship builder. And he knew a product category that I was unfamiliar with. And that product category was drinkware. And the fellow's name was Sergio Munoz, who is a really good friend of mine. We love Just Sergio. Love, Shout love out to Sergio. <laughs> oh, we love him. We love yeah. him. And I remember having discussions with Sergio, understanding that he sought more opportunity. And we hatched this plan to bring him on board. And I knew full well that by bringing him on board, not only was I going to get a fantastic relationship builder, but I was going to get expertise in a product category in which I knew nothing about. Well, if you fast forward two, three years after Sergio came on board, Drinkware became our number one product category. And we're talking millions and millions of dollars. So to that extent, there was some influence with regard to the product categories there. And then, of course, the final one is just being curious right? And always looking around you, what's being used, what's happening, how can we iterate concepts that we see? And I would constantly do that. And although it was really the responsibility of the overseas sourcing team to source the products, I would love adding input. Almost every day I would send them a note. Have you thought of this? Do you like this? What do you think of that concept? What if we changed this? You know, they were probably leaps ahead of me. And, oh, yeah, we've already thought of that, Alex. But I I enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that because it it, it afforded me the opportunity to be creative and and to exercise that creative muscle that I I love exercising. You know, you're getting to know me in this interview. I just just love thinking. I, I love it. It's, uh, it's a passion of mine. I love it too. And you know, that for me, I mean, one of the things that I love so much is the creative part of it, you know, working with clients and coming up with ideas for campaigns and everything else. That's one of my favorite things, but it's interesting. I got to share a story with you now. So I don't even remember how many years ago. I mean, I'm going to say at least 10, maybe 15, I don't know, but a long time ago, I found this item that was really small. It was like the size of a thumb. And you could actually take your information from your computer and put it on this and go home. So I could take stuff from the office, put it on this and go home. And I thought this is going to take off. This thing was called USB drive. The price, I think, for 512 megabytes was like over $100. Okay, I'm not kidding. And I showed it to our my boss and I thought this is great. And then fast forward, right? Now, I mean, USBs are like everywhere. What I, I guess my point of that is, I'm the same way. I like to keep my finger on the pulse of what's going on in the world and trying to be a little bit ahead and finding things that are going to be good. And then also, and this brings me a great circle too, when I see something and I'm, you know, people come to me all the time. Our suppliers come to me with items and say, hey, we got this really cool blank. I think it's going to be really good. What do you think? And then I'm like either thumbs up or thumbs down, right? And I don't think it's going to work. And so I'm curious to know, has there been anything that you've come across or that you have that you thought was going to be successful and popular, but then it completely just tanked? Yes, yes. In my career, I've seen tons and tons of products that never made the grade. But that you Um, thought would? 
Yeah, yeah, there, there have been, there have been. And I'll, and I'll give you one example. I was really intent on developing a health and wellness line many years ago. I felt that this was where the industry needed to go in terms of well-being. And uh, I helped champion that line by suggesting uh, yoga mats and yoga blocks and all kinds of things. And we sourced those products quite successfully. And there were several that I thought would really, really take off, you know, different types of exercise things, hand grips, uh, these slider pads that you can use on the floor when you're doing planks, you can move your arms. And I, and I just thought, oh, these things are the bee's knees. They're going to do so well. And no, they, they, they didn't. They didn't take off at all, which is unfortunate. And I, you know, sometimes you, you can't. Well, you're ahead of your time run. because now health and fitness is everywhere. You know, now that's a big yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe that's it. It was just the, the wrong time. But yeah, I've seen tons. And I've even given the thumbs up to something that's that that's failed miserably. I remember once we we tried a non-woven vest, probably the ugliest thing you'll ever see. Imagine a non-woven <laughs> tote bag, like this, this shopping bag oh that you'll God. see in any grocery store. And and we decided we would turn it into a vest that you could use, you know, in an event. And it was heinous looking, but oh the, the price was ridiculously inexpensive. You can get this thing for like a buck something or two bucks at the most. And I thought, oh my gosh, like there's value in this. And we were the laughing stock of, uh, of, oh. of a trade show once when people came and we actually wore them as uniforms as well. They were god awful. <laughs> oh, like uh, the, the staff just wanted to kill oh. when they found out we were wearing them. So yes, I've seen lots of products. It's funny, eh? Well, yeah. whoever thought the uh, fidget, fidget widget? Fidget spinner? What fidget spinner? Yeah, whoever thought that would be like, oh my god, that there was every iteration of possible of fidget spinners. Remember that was huge. I do. Sometimes you just you know you don't know, and sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't. It's crazy. But I've got a I've got a seven year old here who's not too far away from me at the moment. He can hear us interviewing, and uh, he his eyes lit up when I said fidget spinner. (laughs) He's he's whispering over from a corner over there, Dad. The pop tools. The pop tools. So that that's like the they're called poppets. Thanks, Noah. So they're they're called poppets. And I, have you seen these things, Jolie? Like, it's I don't the, know. You've got to tell me. It's the iteration. It's the next generation of fidget tools. And the poppets are like these silicone trays. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That you do that you used to do with. Um, we used to do that with uh, like you get bubble packaging wrap. and it. Yeah. Bubble wrap. Yes, oh, yeah. Yes, yes. So, yeah. So, you know, there's always awesome. something and there's always a flavor of the month. It's, you know, it boils down to the longevity of the idea. Like, does it have legs? Is it you? useful and I I always say that I always say when I you know I don't care how cool it is if it's just going to sit there and not do anything I don't promote it to my customers you and I had an argument about this in Vegas I don't know if you remember that but we there was an item that you thought was going to be the next thing and I was like I don't think so Alex do you remember that and we like had a little we had a bet we had a bet over that do you remember I remember (laughs) and I will admit readily that you were right and I was completely and totally wrong oh well I'm not saying for who's right or wrong but I just remember like we have these conversations anyway okay so what was the total years that you're in the industry 20 exactly or 21 I think uh, or 20 or 21. It was, it was right around that mark. Okay. And then yeah. climbed up the corporate ladder and you were very, like I said, a rock star and successful and everything. And then you just said, screw it. I'm out of here. <laughs> so like what, I mean, I, I get a little bit now based on, I think some things that you've said during our conversation that I can see why you left, but was there anything specific? Like what was, what was the day that you said, I'm done? 
there's a definite answer to that. And it's an easy question to answer, but I'm going to give you a little bit of context first. I had been questioning life in general for years. I, I had been questioning and I didn't have the courage to do something different, to step out and just say, I'm going to try something different. I was making great money. Um, our family was relatively happy with regard to where we're situated here in life. And that was tough. I and mean, we call those golden handcuffs, right? And so I lacked the courage to, to try something different. And I, I, I wish I had at the time. And it, I, I say this now in reflection, it took me three times until I could finally get out. The first time I was offered a position when I was younger from a competitor and I actually did quit, but I was talked into staying. And uh, I think it was a good decision. Actually, I'm happy I did stay. A second time I got in a big disagreement with somebody and I quit, but I ended up staying. And the third time I quit was not because of uh, a courageous act where I knew I had to do something different. It was because my 16 year old son got stabbed. That changed everything for me. Everything. Is he okay? And he is okay. Thanks for asking, Julie. Um, My 16 year old was stabbed in June of 2020 and he nearly lost his life. And uh, God, I'm so sorry. In Toronto? I, uh, yeah, yeah, here in Toronto, in our sleepy, sleepy town of, of Stouffville. And uh, we got the call one night while we were playing cards as a family. My son, of course, was out. And um, I won't go into the details. It's not worth it. But he was rushed to a trauma center. And, and thankfully, they had uh, incredible surgeons on staff there. They were able to save his life. And when I knew the next day, after an all-night operation and, and some work in the morning, when I found out that he would live, I was driving back to the hospital the second day. I came back to get some clothes. COVID was in full effect. I was not allowed to stay in the hospital with him. Driving back with my ex-wife, uh, she is the mother of, of our son. And I said to her, I have sent my last email ever on behalf of the company I'm with. And she looked at me like, what? Like, what are you talking about? And I knew, I knew in my heart that everything I had ever felt in life, every misconception I had ever had, every bit of curiosity I had ever had about who I am, what I had to do, how I was going to express myself had to be realized. Life was way too short and I wasn't going to do it anymore. And so you know, a lot of people will say, well, yeah, I see why you quit, Alex. It was your son. But it was a combination of a culmination of how I was feeling and this absolute realization, this event that was so catastrophic for our family and yet so unbelievably transformative that caused absolutely everything in my life to shift. The, gra- the ground beneath us, it just it just flew away. It flew away. And I decided the day after I was done. Now, I didn't tell the company immediately. I, I took all of my vacation time, uh, of which I probably had three or four weeks. I took that time. And after my vacation was done, I wanted to reflect by myself. I called uh, and, and I, I said, I, I, I will be resigning. And uh, being an awesome company, they said, Alex, like, we love you. Please take all the time you need to think about this. Would you think about it? I I felt I owed them that. I care for them so much. And I did think about it. But I knew 30 days later that I still felt the same way. And I called back 30 days later and said, this is my decision. So that's what precipitated the move out of the promotional products industry and started an entire 
new life for me. Everything about my life is different than it was prior to June of 2020. Wow. Well, first of all, I'm really sorry to hear that about your son. I had no idea. I'm shocked. And I'm thank God he's okay. And I have two teenagers. I have an 18 year old and a 15 year old. So I can't even imagine what that must have been like for you guys. So thank God he's okay. Thanks, and did you know when you left after your son, how that happened? Or you just knew you wanted to leave, but you didn't know what you want to go to? I didn't have any clue. I had no clue what I was going to do. And I think that I had developed an unhealthy level of arrogance in the position that I was in, the money I was making. And I felt at the time when I quit, no problem. I will do something else and I will be successful immediately. Hmm. And that was arrogance. And so, you know, the universe kicked us in the ass when it came to the unfortunate incident with our son. And then I was kicked in the ass by myself and my own arrogance afterwards. And so there, there was a lot of ass kicking. But why do you say arrogance? Sorry, I'm just curious because you built up this amazing career. You're obviously really good at what you did and you have a lot, you had a lot of skills that could be transferable. There's a fine line, I think, between arrogance and confidence. When I think of arrogance, I think of someone who thinks they're better than other people and that they're entitled to certain things. I mean, did you feel entitled or did you just feel confident that you were going to get something because of your skills and expertise and years of experience? No, I'm really appreciative that you made that observation and that you asked this question. And I think that you're right. I am my own worst enemy oftentimes in, you know, I think that often people, you know, do a lot of self-loathing and, uh, and I've been guilty of that. And I still struggle with that at times. I do too. But trust when, me. Okay. Yeah. I think, I think Very a lot much. of us do. Yeah. And when we talk about, you know, when you talk about arrogance and you ask me that question, I would say that the arrogance comes from the, the fact that I felt I could do it. Now, you, you mentioned that fine line between confidence and arrogance. And what I think I didn't realize was that interdependent notion that it takes a community, that it takes friendships, that it takes relationships to make it. And I just didn't think that. I, I was focusing on myself as the guy who was going to do it. And this whole new life has led me to understand just how valuable people are, has, has made me value humanity more than it ever has. And I just realized that I can't accomplish anything unless I work with other people. And that includes my family members, that includes my customers, that includes my suppliers, that includes anyone that I interact with. And so from that standpoint, I think that I had a degree of arrogance and I, I thought, oh yeah, I'll replace my income within a year. No problem. And it's been anything, but it's been so unbelievably humbling trying to start these businesses from scratch. And it's just been one learning lesson after the next for which I am so unbelievably grateful, but it has been so unbelievably hard. And I love both of those things. You know what? When I'm listening to you. I can relate to so much of what you're saying. I don't want to get to my whole sad story, but did very well for many, many years, was top sales, Western Canada, making you know crazy money and everything. And then the rug was pulled out from under me. My marriage ended, the mm. economy sucked, lost like huge client. And same thing. I'm like, oh, I'll get it back. Right. I was there before and it's been hard and it is a challenge and it is super humbling. And, you know, there's a lot, I always try to ask myself or tell myself, like, there's a reason for all these struggles. There's a reason why this is all happening. And, you know, one of the great things is I started my podcast and you and I are going to talk about it in a second. But I also think that it's given me so much more empathy and compassion for people because 
going through that and really going through that struggle and feeling like you're getting knocked down, you know, left and then right, is that I just have, like I said, I'm just way more compassionate and feel that as you get out of it and you become successful again, you don't forget all that happened to you. And it makes you way more sympathetic and empathetic and compassionate to people around you. And I think that builds character and it's made me a better person at the end of the day. I think that's so beautiful. And I think that these are the lenses of perception that we get to see through. Right? Yeah. We're so fortunate to experience the highs and the lows and everything in between because it just gives us more education, more perspective. Yeah. And uh, I, I, yeah, I so relate to your story. And I, I just, I, I think that these are the important conversations, you know, really admitting that as high as we've been or as low as we've been, we're human. And that's what what makes us relatable, right? That's, that's what makes humanity relatable. So it doesn't matter who I'm working with. You're a human being just like me and you've had hard times and you've had great times and probably some of those things you've experienced at the same time. So this is, this is the point that I really want to drive home here is that I just have discovered love so much more love in my life than I've ever known or ever felt that I was capable of, of experiencing And this is the journey that I'm on is to continue to expand those levels of love and Mm -hmm. expand that awareness around consciousness and love. Yeah, it's funny. I can relate to so much of what you're saying. I mean, not about your son, but the whole career roller coaster and everything. Okay, so I want to talk podcasting because that's another thing we have in common. What was the impetus for you starting your podcast? You have not just one, but you have two. And I know how much work one is, so I can't even imagine having two. So let's talk podcast. So what's the name of your podcast? Why did you start? All right. So the first podcast I started was called, is called Almost Enlightened. And this was the first thing I ever did after I left the corporate industry. And it was just a form of expression. I I realized, you know, as the months went by and as summer was ending and I had spent just an unbelievable time reflecting and looking at nature and being in it, suddenly I had an epiphany and that epiphany was, hey, I've got something to say. And I didn't even know what I had to say at the time. I just knew that I had something to say. And so, you know, I, I, I took a look at, at guys like Joe Rogan, Ferris, lots of other podcasters. And I, I just, I said to myself, I can do this. <clears throat> Joel, just kidding. <laughs> like, well, you, I think we started it around the same time. So I I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. <laughs> you would have been one of them. Though. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> I took a look at all of these podcasters and I, and I thought, I can do that. I want to do that. I really want to do that. And again, this is where perhaps some of the arrogance creeps in. I figured, oh yeah, I can monetize this in no time. And I didn't even know what Almost Enlightened was going to be about. I just wanted it to be somewhat spiritual. I wanted it to chronicle a journey, my journey. And I was starting off in, in almost you know, with tabula rasa, I, it was, it was a blank slate. And so I, I decided I would open myself up and just talk about what I see and not really care if I get it right or wrong. It's just a forum for exploration. And, you know, in, in many of the podcasts that I have written and recorded, um, I realize now, yeah, my viewpoints have shifted. Things have changed. I don't feel the same way about it, but it's, it's a forum and it's an ongoing one. And so that was the first podcast. And it's, it's like a child to me. I, 
I just love it with all my heart, Jolie, like as you probably do your podcast. Yeah, me too. And the second one is, is a result of synergy and a result of alignment and, and determining that I wanted to begin to align myself and have more alignment financially because I was having a hard time monetizing almost enlightened. And so given the relationships that I had in the promotional products industry, given the fact that I love education, given this newfound experience in podcasting, I felt that I could marry all those things together and I could share what I know from a 20-year career in the promotional products industry and business in general. And I could tie that into an educational company that produces blogs, that does podcasts, that's now doing product review videos. And I could tie it all together. And in that sense, with, with all of the experience I have, I would probably be able to monetize that in the sense that people would say, hey, you have value and I'll exchange you know, your knowledge for money. And so this is what ended up happening with my foray into promo noise. And I just love promo noise now too, because it's a completely different entity. I retain an element of spirituality, but it's, it's much less philosophical and, and more based on my observations but marrying my love of spirituality, there's, there's, there's a market for both. And, and I, I just, I like the flexibility and the promo noise channel has turned into much more of a bite-sized forum as well, whereby the podcasts are typically about five minutes long. And yeah, I've done a couple of interviews that, that stretch into the hours, uh, but, but by and large, they're, they're shorter than the, the forum that I put out on Almost Enlightened. So that's kind of how they came into being and why I love them so much. They just align now with, with who I am and they're, they're my form of expression or they're one of my forms of expression. Well, good for you. And you know what? You can say all you want about capitalism, but it's not a bad thing. And we all have mouths to feed. I have, you know, I'm a single mom. I got two kids. And at the end of the day, we're not non for profit unless you're independently wealthy you have to make money and so right. why not do something that you're passionate about and that you love the key there is giving value and if you're going to give your audience value and they're going to take away something that is going to help them or solve their problems then I think that's the key and that's how you're going to make money I mean for me my goal when I launched mine was really to helping people that are forced entrepreneurs I've had mm -hmm. people say to me like I've learned so much about branding and marketing from your podcast and it's been great to help me with my business. I have learned a tremendous amount from your podcast. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I can't take the credit. It's my guess. Like, that's the thing, too, is I'm very fortunate because I've had amazing leaders that have shared not only their great stories, but really valuable tips. So I really appreciate you saying that because that was my goal was to do just that. Okay, so before we go... When I was doing my research on you, I found out that you had some experience in the Vancouver Opera. Can you tell me about that experience? I was blown away when I read that. I mean, I know you have a passion for music, but tell me about that experience. Yeah, I, I started singing from an early age, of course. Uh, Mom encouraged us to do all kinds of different arts things. And I, I started singing and my first foray into it was with the Bach Children's Chorus in Vancouver. And from there, I, I uh, had an audition for a role with Theatre Under the Stars in Vancouver. And I, I won the lead role of Oliver in the musical Oliver with not a ton of experience. You know, and it was it was a real like, wow, it was a real honor. It was a real cool thing. And and so I was singing and I was, you know, doing this play for an entire summer to audiences in Vancouver. <laughs> 
And one day I came across an, an audition paper on one of the bulletin boards backstage at the musical I was in in Oliver, and it was for Vancouver Opera Company. And they needed a lead role in a Benjamin Britten opera called The Turn of the Screw. And the lead character's name is Miles. And I mean, I, I really had no opera experience, except that as a boy soprano, I, I could sing. And I, I sang classical music with the Bach Children's Choir as well. And so I, I went to the interview thinking, or sorry, the audition thinking nothing of it. Ah, you know, this will be kind of cool and a neat experience. And lo and behold, I ended up getting the lead role with the Vancouver Opera Company. It was ridiculous. How like, old were you? I was in grade seven, eight, I think, you right before my voice changed. 13, right 12, 13 I, I think, or something? I want to say around that age, because yeah. I remember camera oh, crews coming to the junior high school and interviewing and showing the school and stuff. So, so I think that that was about the age. And uh, from Vancouver Opera Company, I won a full scholarship to the BAMP School of Fine Arts for a summer. I studied there for a little while and did another opera there. And uh, always had a, a love of opera. And of course, my voice changed eventually and I could no longer be a boy soprano. But I studied with a, a marvelous teacher in Vancouver who taught some of the stars that used to come to town. His name was Nikolai Kolesnikov. He's no longer with us, unfortunately. But I, uh, I became a baritone with him. And I really considered working towards perhaps auditioning for the Met auditions and, and, and being an opera singer. And I had traveled around the world with my mom watching operas in Austria and different places and, and having that experience. But I fell in love with rock and roll music when I was in Australia. <laughs> I saw somebody playing a guitar. They, they told me they had only been playing for a year. And I said, you can do that in a year? Are you kidding me? You mean in a year I could be that good? And I picked up the guitar and I never put it down. I just wow. fell in love with the creativity of it. And I sort of moved away from opera, but I still, I still love opera to this day. So yeah, that's, kind that's of a, so cool. Kind of a... That's great. I love that. And you were in Oliver. It's funny. I, I took my two boys to see West Side Story. It was in the theaters. First movie I've seen in, since COVID. So over two years, went to the movie yeah. theater, took them to see West Side Story. And I was Anita in West Side Story. Do you know, have you seen West Side Story? Come on, of course I have. Yeah, yes, yeah. So I played really. Anita. So when my when her big part came out, I started singing and they're both beside me, all embarrassed. And yeah, so you know, <laughs> we have a lot in common. It's so funny. Anyway. We totally do. Podcasters, musicians, actors. I'm not as talented musician as you. Wow, Alex, it's been so great talking to you. I mean, very emotional. But we laughed, we cried, but that's what it's all about, right? I love it. Thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, um, Julie, it's, it's a, such an honor to be on your show. It's such an honor to speak with you, someone who I respect enormously. Keep doing what you're doing. You're inspiring everybody in our industry and even outside of our industry, people who are listening to your show. So thank you. Thank you. And for thank you for asking such interesting questions, some thought-provoking questions. I really appreciate the opportunity to share today. So thank well, you. Well, you're welcome. And thank you. And I appreciate you being so vulnerable. So if people want to learn more about either or both of your podcasts or how they can get a hold of you for all your other, because you also do consulting and coaching and you do a lot of things. How, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? The best way is you can check out Promo Noise at promonoise.com. You can also check out Almost Enlightened on any podcast channel, Apple, Spotify, and I have a website, almostenlightened.life, L-I-F-E. And I've also got another company called Working Writers Co., 
and I teach people how to write books and that's turned into a really awesome endeavor as well. So there's a few ways. And if you want to get a hold of me, I'm Alex at promonoise.com. Just the way it sounds, promonoise.com. Well, my friend, have a great uh, weekend. It was really, really good to see you. And this was so much fun. And I can't wait to chat again really soon. Uh, much love to you, Jolie. Thank you so much. And thanks to your audience as well for listening. I really appreciate it. Okay. We'll talk to you later. Bye. All right. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and maybe learned a few things to help you with your branding. But most of all, I hope you had some fun. This show is a work in progress, so please remember to rate and review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. And if you want to learn more about me and what I do to help my clients with their branding, feel free to reach out to me on any of the social channels under, you guessed it, Branding Badass. Branding Matters was produced, edited, and hosted by Jolie Goodson, also me. So thanks again, and until next time, here's to all you badasses out there.